0: Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us. If you have a Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. As we just read, we will be in verses uh, 17 through 24, and uh, and so as you turn there, I want to tell you I will be out of the office uh, next week. Uh, this whole coming week, uh, actually, because I'm going with my extended family on a trip to uh, to Florida. I have a family member who uh, owns a house out there, and uh, so we're going to be out there with nieces and nephews, and my parents and and siblings, and uh, and so forth. and uh, And so when it comes to uh, vacations, there are uh, a couple of different types of people. On one hand, you have those who are the minimal, minimalist, and then on the other hand, you have overpackers, all right? So raise your hand if you think I'm on the minimalist side of the spectrum. If you think you are on the, okay, now raise your hand if you are on the overpacker side of the spectrum. Okay, which do you think I am? Shout it out. I am not a minimalist, all right? I am a big overpacker. I'm the type of guy who thinks I need to bring a chair to the beach, all right? That makes sense. But then I need a spare chair in case the tide takes away my first chair, all right? And so that's the kind of guy uh, I am. And as a result of that, my truck is just absolutely... Uh, packed with stuff. It looks like uh, someone, some like an expert in Tetris, has uh, has gone and uh, and played a game of Tetris on my uh, truck. And so that's the uh, that's uh, what's happening right now. So, what are some things that you might need to bring if you're going on a beach vacation? Go ahead and yell them out. Sunscreen, swimsuit, books, sunglasses, an umbrella right a backup umbrella and then a the third in, in addition to that you need beach chairs you need all kinds of things right you need beach toys to make a sand castle you need a waterproof football or a frisbee or something like that you need a cooler preferably a yeti cuz i'm a yeti guy and uh, and then your yeti has to be packed with all kinds of snacks and drinks and so forth you need a snorkel or goggles or something you need sandals and uh, all of these different things that you need and i have all of that and more in my truck, but technically, I actually don't need any of that, right? The closest to an actual need in in that entire list is a swimsuit, although technically, you don't need a swimsuit, right? You could just get some jorts, some cut-off jean shorts, and you could wear those to the beach, and I'm sure everyone would think that's great, Uh, but technically, none of that stuff is absolutely necessary, all right? You kind of, for a beach trip, you kind of just need a beach, right? Everything else, everything else that we shouted out is helpful. It makes the trip more convenient, more comfortable, more enjoyable, but it's not absolutely necessary. Well, that's similar to what we're seeing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Over the past few weeks, we've been considering things like marriage and singleness, and we've seen that you don't need to be single in order to be faithful, Right? It makes faithfulness easier in some areas and it makes faithfulness harder in other areas. And the same is true of marriage. You don't need to be married in order to be faithful. It makes uh, faithfulness easier in some ways and harder in other ways. Well, that principle is going to continue in our text today. What we've seen over the past few weeks is gonna continue in our text today. And Paul is going to then bring in some further examples. And those examples include circumcision and slavery. And Paul's gonna say, you don't need to be circumcised or uncircumcised in order to be faithful. And you don't need to be of a particular socioeconomic class or a particular social strata or something like that in order to be faithful, all right? There are certain advantages, there are certain disadvantages to both of those things, but neither condition is an actual obstacle to your obedience. So that's what we're going to see in our text, and so let's pray, and then we'll dive in together and, uh, and see that. I'll ask you first just to pray for yourself as you come in with, maybe you're distracted, maybe you're upset, maybe you had a fight on the way up here maybe you just feel far from the Lord would you ask that the Lord would renew your mind and, and as your mind is renewed that your uh, life would be uh, changed that you would experience repentance and conviction and sanctification and so forth would you pray the same for those around you the Lord would give us collectively a heart to, uh, to know and to heed his word And then lastly, would you pray for me, for faithfulness and boldness. So Father, we ask for your help. We, we confess that apart from you, we can do nothing. That, uh, that these are just mere words apart from the work of your spirit. And so we pray that your spirit would... Help us to, uh, to not only understand, but uh, to be transformed uh, as, we, uh, as we read uh, your word this morning that uh, your son would be glorified, that we would hope in the gospel. We pray these things because you're good and you do good, so we ask in Christ's name, amen. Let's look at verse 17. We'll begin there, 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. All right, let's set some. Uh, let's set the table with a bit of context. Uh, so 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians, is written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, which was a city that was known uh, throughout the Roman Empire. It was a city that was known for fancy speech. They loved rhetoric. It was known for its wealth, and it was known for uh, wanton sexuality. And one of the major uh, themes of the letter is how that which the word treasures that which the world exalts is going to be despised by God uh, because the wisdom of God is folly to the world and vice versa and so that principle which we saw in the first couple of chapters in first Corinthians is then going to be worked out throughout the rest of the books uh, the rest of the book and so in chapter five we saw it regarding sexual morality in the church in chapter six we saw it with lawsuits among believers and uh, and Paul would say uh, why not rather be wronged why not rather be defrauded this uh, huge uh, hugely countercultural counter intuitive idea and then in chapter Seven, we're going to see this principle applied within the context of singleness in, uh, and in marriage. And so in Corinth, you have two sides of the marital spectrum. All right, in, in, in Corinth, you have two sides of the marital spectrum. On one hand, you have those who are saying, you absolutely have to get married. God says to be faithful, uh, you have to be fruitful and you have to multiply. You need to get married and you need to have babies. So, we've talked about the fact that this is not a binding command for Christians, that we're all commanded to bear fruit and multiply, but that we can do that not merely physically, but spiritually. All right, and so that's not the primary application of that. Uh, today is not physical, it is spiritual. So even those who are single or barren or divorced or widowed or whatever it might be can still be faithful to this command to bear fruit and multiply by raising up spiritual sons and daughters. In fact, in some sense, as we'll see in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 uh, in later verses, in some sense singleness is even better for the sake of that particular Mission. So that's one side of the spectrum. On the other hand, on the other side of the spectrum are those who are insisting on asceticism. They're saying that singleness is the ideal, that, uh, that marriage or at least sex within marriage was, uh, was dirty. And so any sort of super spiritual varsity Christian should refrain from marriage or even abstain from sex within marriage. But Paul says, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, paraphrasing here, he says, that's stupid all right, Sex is a good gift that God gives to be stewarded within the context of marriage, which is also a good gift. Well, what about divorce? We saw that in our text uh, over the past couple of weeks, actually. And so the cultural expression or, or expectation in Corinth was that divorce is allowable for just about any reason whatsoever. But biblically, that's not the case, as we've seen. In fact, there are only two biblical grounds for divorce. That is sexual morality and abandonment, and that's all by way of review. That's what we've covered over the past few weeks in chapter seven. Go back and listen to the audio if, uh, if any of that doesn't register. And all of that context is going to be really important because our passage today is going to provide further illustration of the point that he's been making throughout chapter seven. And that point is the fact that God has gifted different people in different ways and that we should be content With the gifts that he gives. We should be content with the gifts that he gives and steward them appropriately. Let me repeat that because that's kind of the main theme that we're seeing here. God gifts different people in different ways, and we should be content with the gifts that he gives and we should steward them appropriately. All right, now let's look at the beginning of our text to see that principle begin to be applied. In, uh, in the passage this morning. Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. In other words, if you've been called to marriage and you've been assigned that particular gift, then use it, steward it, live it accordingly. If you've been called to singleness, if that's a gift that you have, then use it. What matters is not your circumstances. What matters is God's calling, Now notice a few things here. Notice God's sovereignty. He's the one who assigns. He's the one who calls. He's the one who distributes gifts according to the counsel of his will. In light of that, in light of that reality, in light of the reality of God's sovereignty over what he gives and what he withholds, our frustration, the frustration that we experience with what we have or what we don't have isn't just a criticism of those conditions and those circumstances, it's really a subtle frustration at God because God is the one who ordains and orchestrates the circumstances of our lives. In other words, dissatisfaction, any dissatisfaction, any frustration, any discontentment that we experience in our life is really this subtle sort of jab at God's wisdom and his love and his power. All right, so that's the first thing I want you to notice here, that this theme that runs through the text is God's sovereignty. Related to that, also notice that God assigns different gifts to different people, right? There is this diversity within the body of Christ. We read about that earlier in the chapter, in, uh, in verse 7. Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another, We'll see that same principle even more clearly when we get to chapter 12, where Paul's going to talk about spiritual gifts, and that God assigns different gifts to different people, right? So this is really important. It's really important to recognize the fact that God distributes different gifts to different people that's really important in today's political and cultural context, because we as a culture today have this presupposition that equality demands equity, That people have not only equal access, but also equal outcome. That all people should receive the exact same gifts, the exact same opportunities, the exact same salaries, the exact same benefits. Otherwise, we say that's injustice, that's oppression. That any sort of disparity between any two groups or any two persons is a sign of discrimination. That's the foundational assumptions of what's happening in our culture, philosophically. That's what's happening with modern feminism. That's what's happening with postmodernism, with critical race theory, and so forth. If you don't know what those things are, go back and listen to our theological quipping uh, from last year because we talked about that. And all of that sounds super spiritual. It sounds good to have this idea of equity. Everyone has the same amount. But the problem is that just isn't biblical, right? The Bible says to some, God gives 10 talents. To some, God gives five talents. To some, God gives one talent. To some, God gives the gift of sight. Others are born blind. Some are born deaf. Others can hear. To some, God is going to overcome their spiritual blindness, their depravity, their hatred of Christ, and call them to the gospel. To others, he leaves them in their depravity To some, God is going to give contentment with the gift of singleness. To others, he gives a spouse. Some have believing spouses. Others don't. Some bear children. Others can't bear children. God gives different gifts to different people, and that isn't unjust or unfair because God owes us nothing. He's our creator. He's our sovereign. He's our king, and everything he does is good by its very definition, But the main point that I want you to see here is that none of these conditions that we experience, none of of the circumstances of our life, none of the conditions that we have or the lack thereof are obstacles to our faithfulness, whether it's marriage or singleness, whether it's our Jewishness or our Gentileness. Whether we're men or women, whether we're uh, healthy or we're ill, whether we're rich or poor, we're slave or free, whatever it might be, no status is incompatible with God's call. No status inherently, inherently makes you better or worse in the kingdom. Let's keep going. Verses 18 and 19, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So we've seen a main point, live according to the calling and assignment of God. That main point is exemplified particularly within the context of marriage or singleness. That's the overarching theme uh, or context of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But now we see it uh, with another application, and that is circumcision, all right? Ooh, gross. That's what we're going to talk about for a little bit. All right, so what is circumcision? Well, circumcision is the ritualistic removal of the foreskin of a man's penis. And this was was a a custom uh, that was practiced within a a number of cultures, uh, such as among Egyptian priests and so forth. But Israel was really unique among the nations in that it was required for all men. All right. In fact, it was seen as a sign of God's covenant with Israel. It's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. The idea of that Abrahamic covenant is that God would one day bring an offspring, literally a seed of Abraham who would be a blessing to all of the nations. That's why the sign, by the way, was associated with the male sexual organ because the covenant promised a seed or an offspring. And circumcision is this huge issue in the early church. In fact, the very first church council is not Nicaea in 325 or Chalcedon in 451 or something like that. The very first church council is actually called in response to the question of circumcision. You see that in the book of Acts. Because there are a number of guys, they're uh, they're called the Judaizers, a number of guys, the Judaizers are going around and they're saying, you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. So that's one side of the spectrum. One side of the spectrum says you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. What about the other side of the spectrum? All right, to introduce that, let me tell you a story from my own childhood. It has nothing to do with circumcision, don't worry. All right, it's just, it's relevant nonetheless. When I was a kid, I played, uh, I played uh, tennis. I wasn't great. We have a professional tennis player who's actually uh, here today. She brought me back a, a hat from Wimbledon. But uh, uh, I was a tennis player whenever I was a kid. So most summers, I would be outside for hours hitting the ball. So by the end of the summer, I would have this incredible sock tan line, all right? And, uh, and I didn't care because I was a kid. But then I got into high school, and I did care because... Well, I'm a teenager and all of a sudden I care what people think about me. And, uh, and so there was one summer in particular where I had this egregious sock tan line and I decided I'm never going to show that off in public. The problem is I like swimming. So for that, that entire summer, I swam with my socks on. <laughs> now here's my question. What's more embarrassing? To <laughs> you just show your tan line or to be the guy that's swimming in socks, all right? Now I think I'm I'm the weirdo, all right? I was actually, um, so that's kind of what's happening in Corinth, except instead of being ashamed of a tan line, they're actually ashamed of their circumcision. But you think, how would anyone know if you're circumcised uh, or not? Well, in the Roman Empire, people generally exercised without any clothes on, right? In fact, the word gymnasium is derived from the Greek word for naked, if you think it's awkward to like, be in the locker room with someone after they've worked out, imagine seeing some old guy doing lunges or something like that. <laughs> but given this sort of culturally appropriate context for public nudity, a Jew might be tempted to hide their marks uh, of their ethnicity in order to enhance their, uh, their chances for social status or something. So they would turn to a process that's called epispasm, Epispasm, which is the, re- the reversal of circumcision, or at least a procedure done to mimic the reversal of circumcision. Technically, you can't actually reverse a, uh, a circumcision because this foreskin has been removed. You can't just glue it back on or something. But you can, quote-unquote, remove the marks of circumcision. I'm not going to describe that process. You can Google it. If you do, you're on your own, all right? I would imagine there are some certain things you can't unsee. I don't know that. That's just an educated guess. But uh, you might want to give a heads up to your accountability partner or something. Anyway, those are the two sides of the spectrum. Yeah, on one hand, you have those who are saying you have to be circumcised. On the other hand, you have those who are embarrassed by their uh, circumcision. They lamented it. They, they regretted it. So what does Paul say? He says it doesn't matter. If you're circumcised, great. Stay that way. If you're not circumcised, great. Stay that way. Now, quick little cultural comment that I think is really helpful here. When Paul says not to seek circumcision, he's talking about this within the context of the debates that are going on in the first century. He's talking about circumcision for the sake of religious motivations. All right, if you want to to get uh, circumcised because you think it's going to make you more spiritual, if you think it'll make you more righteous, if you think you want to get in touch with your Jewish roots, whatever it might be, you absolutely should not do that. You should not get circumcised for religious reasons. That is a binding command uh, today. But that doesn't mean that if you have a baby boy today that you can't circumcise him for health reasons or aesthetics or something like that. I'm not saying that you should. I'm not saying that you shouldn't. I'm just saying that doing so for reasons that aren't religious isn't what this passage is about. In general, circumcision is an example of something that's called adiaphora. Do it. Don't do it. It doesn't matter as long as you're doing it or not doing it, isn't motivated by thinking that it in any way contributes to your justification or even your sanctification. So Paul can write this really sweeping statement that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. And that is a huge statement. Why? Because Paul himself is Jewish. Circumcision is literally the primary mark of the people of Israel, It's the sign of the covenant that's made with Father Abraham. You know, Father Abraham had many sons. This is the sign that was made with the people of Israel. But Paul's going to say, circumcision counts for nothing. And this isn't the only place that he says that. For example, Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, nothing, but only faith working through love. Galatians 6.15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. He'll say the same thing also in the book of Romans. So Paul writes that circumcision counts for nothing. It doesn't matter. So what does? Well, he says keeping the commandments of God. But now you might think, but, but I thought that circumcision was a commandment. Well, it was. So now I'm confused, right? How does keeping the commandments matter? But circumcision doesn't if circumcision is a commandment. That seems really inconsistent. Is it actually inconsistent? No, it's not. But it seems like it. So why isn't it inconsistent? The reason is because with a new covenant come new laws. So for example, although Israel was commanded to circumcise their sons, we are not. And although Israel was commanded to, uh, to, to uh, Sabbath on a particular day in a particular way, we are not. Although Israel was prevented, was prohibited from eating pork, we are not. You are free in Christ to eat as much bacon as you want. Even apart from resurrection and forgiveness of sins and all that, that right there makes the new covenant better than the old, I think, right? (laughs) Unlimited bacon. All right? Well, what about other Old Testament laws then? Are you saying that we're just free from all, all what's uh, uh, completely? Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. You, sh- you, you can't practice uh, sexual morality? Does that mean that now we're free because we can eat bacon, so we are, we're free to commit adultery and murder and so forth? And the answer is no. Is that consi- inconsistent? Again, no, it's not. Rather, we've used this illustration a number of times, it's really helpful. We've used the illustration of speed limits. I want you to imagine, if you will, that you're driving north along I 35. You have the windows down, the music cranked up, you have the cruise control set to 70 because that's the speed limit and none of you would ever disobey the governing authorities. So you're going the speed limit, you pass Denton, you pass Gainesville, you cross the Red River and you're still traveling 70. But why are you going 70, all right? Is it because that's the speed limit in Texas? No, you're not in Texas anymore. You are in a land called Oklahoma, all right? And I imagine they have laws there And I imagine if you break them, probably they send out a posse to get you or something like that. All right? So you're still going the same speed. The application of the law is the same, and yet you're under a different jurisdiction. You're under a different authority. All right? Now, I haven't done a lot of in depth study, but I would imagine that between Texas and Oklahoma, there are a whole lot of similar laws. I would imagine there's also some different ones. Well, likewise, between the Mosaic Law, And the new covenant law, the law of Christ, or the law of the gospel, or something like that. Certain laws look the same between the two don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't practice sexual morality, whatever it might be, but others are going to be somewhat different. And the reason is that we're under a new authority, we're under a new jurisdiction, a new law. And circumcision is one of those laws that's no longer binding. What was the point of circumcision? Well, it was a sign, and it was a sign that pointed, as we said before, towards the ultimate offspring, again, the idea of a seed or offspring of Israel who would fulfill the law, and that's Christ. But it was also a symbol of the ultimate goal for us, which is not just a circumcised foreskin, but a circumcised heart. Look at Deuteronomy ten sixteen: circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So that's a command that he gives in the, the, uh, the, uh, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. The problem with that command is that I can't control that, right? I can circumcise, not me personally, but I could circumcise uh, my son's foreskin, but I can't circumcise his heart. I can't even circumcise my own heart. Rather, that's something that God must do. Deuteronomy thirty-six. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. All right. That same imagery then of a circumcised heart is then going to be applied throughout the prophets to the promise of a new covenant in which God would circumcise not the external organ, but the internal heart. And not just males, but all of God's people, male and female, So now that this uh, has been fulfilled, the sign itself is no longer going to be necessary. So let me put all of this together. Circumcision itself is intended, was intended for the people of Israel as a temporary marker for that nation, but it was never intended to be this permanent sign. It was intended to point to the coming of Christ And also intended to point toward our regeneration when our hearts are going to be circumcised. And the result of that circumcised hearts is that we are thereby empowered to, quote, keep the commandments of God, which is what Paul will write about in 1 Corinthians 7. Not the old commandments of the Mosaic Law, but the new commandment that we would love God and love others. And if you love God and love others, then there are certain things that you're going to do or not do that are similar to the Mosaic Law, but you're under a different jurisdiction, a different covenant. And now that we're no longer under the old covenant, circumcision is irrelevant because your calling isn't dependent upon some sort of physical condition or your ethnicity. Let's keep going. We're not even halfway through the verse. We're running out of time. Verses 20 through 22. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Let's give kind of the lay of the land uh, again. The overall context is concerning uh, marriage or uh, singleness. And the overall principle is that we should be content with the gifts that God gives and steward those uh, appropriately. And uh, so that's the context, All right, Paul then gives an illustration of circumcision and he says not to worry about whether you're circumcised or not because it doesn't matter. But then he moves on from that illustration to a second illustration, that of bond servants. Notice, by the way, how each illustration that he's going to give is going to strip away some source of where we find our identity, whether that's marriage or ethnicity or socioeconomic class. Some people find their identity in a spouse or a lack thereof. Others find it in their ethnicity. Others find it in their vocation or their social class. Part of the background noise that we'll see throughout the book of 1 Corinthians is that we shouldn't find our ultimate identity in anything other than Christ. Not our job, not our spouse, not our wealth, not our race, not our nationality, nothing. What matters is not whether you're of this or that race, or this or that gender, or this or that marital status, or this or that social strata, but rather whether you're in Christ. Back to the text. Paul gives this general principle. He says, remain in the condition in which you were called. In other words, you can be faithful to God's call on your life as a spouse, so don't divorce, or as a single, or a wave. Uh, a wave. That's a widow and a slave put together, all right? It's better than uh, what Zach said during theological. He said myrtle, which is mur- murder and cardinal together. So a wave is a, a, a widow slave, apparently. So a widow or a slave or a free person or a Jew or a Gentile. And Paul's point is such things are not obstacles to your obedience and your joy. So there's this sense in which God cares very little about what you actually do vocationally. I mean, you can't be an adult actor or a professional hitman or something like that to the glory of God, but in general, it doesn't matter if you're a plumber or a pastor or a teacher or a baker or a banker or whatever it might be. You can be faithful regardless of your vocation even if you happen to be, what he talks about here, which is a bondservant. Now, to understand what's really happening here in in this text, we need to talk a little bit about slavery, which is another way to translate the ESV word bondservant. They haven't translated it as slave for reasons that we'll uh, talk about uh, shortly. When we think about slavery today, what do we tend to think of? We think of uh, two images, all right? I can guarantee you that 99.99% of the people here uh, think of two images, unless you think of Spartacus or something like that. But we tend to think of either antebellum, American slavery, or we think of the modern sex trade, all right? Therefore, when we read about slavery as a concept in the Bible, we instantly have these connotations that aren't actually helpful. They don't get us closer to the meaning of the text. They actually push us further away from the meaning of the text. So I want to give you a bit more context about uh, ancient slavery so that when we read about slaves or bond servants, we aren't assuming something that isn't really actually there. We're not reading our culture onto the text. So There are six statements that I want to make about slavery that helps you to understand what the Bible does and doesn't say about it. <coughs> Number one. The Bible absolutely and explicitly condemns the type of modern slavery that we think of today, all right, How so? By condemning slavery that is founded upon the stealing of persons, all right, as was true of the African slave trade and as, as true of, uh, of most modern forms of slavery. Exodus twenty-one sixteen: whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be to death. Well, is that, though, just one of the Mosaic law things that we're no longer under? 1 Timothy 1.10, the sexually immoral, men who practice sexuality, enslavers, that literally means man-stealers, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So from here on out, when I talk about slavery within the context of Corinth, within the uh, context of the Bible... I'm not talking about 19th century race-based slavery or things like that. It's the same word. It's a totally different concept, all right, which brings us to the second point, which is that modern slavery is significantly different than most of the ancient forms of slavery that are mentioned in the scriptures. For example, it typically, ancient slavery typically wasn't based on race or ethnicity. Education was generally encouraged Slaves weren't actually the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. Most slaves could eventually hope for the opportunity for freedom. Slaves could actually earn a salary. Slavery was often an opportunity for advancement, etc. In fact, many people within the ancient world sold themselves into slavery in attempt to uh, move up the social ladder. In a sense, it's kind of like an unpaid internship today. You serve for free for a period of time, but there's eventually some sort of reward in doing so. So at a previous church, right? Jared was my intern. Look at him now, all of his glory. All right. <laughs> so those are just some of the differences. This is why the ESV translates the Greek word doulos as bondservant instead of slave. Why? Because even though the word is actually slave, they realize that they they, they want to help us to not read our modern presuppositions, our modern connotations of slavery into the text. And all of that helps us to then understand the third point, which is that the Bible doesn't universally condemn all forms of slavery. The Bible doesn't universally condemn all forms of slavery, but it does regulate them in such a way as to prohibit any abuse. Right, we, have to just, we have to just admit this, not be embarrassed by it, not be ashamed of it, not deny it, not ignore it. Neither Paul nor Peter nor Jesus himself will come out anywhere in the Bible and say all forms of slavery are always inherently evil. But the Bible clearly says that some forms are evil and that all forms need to be regulated by the gospel. So masters are told to treat their slaves justly and graciously and so forth, all right? In light of this, number four, misunderstanding and misapplication of what scripture does and doesn't say about slavery is possible on either side. For example, some people try to use the Bible's regulation of ancient slavery to condone modern slavery. That was the argument that the South used in the Civil War. They were applying commands about one type of slavery to justify an entirely different type. You can't do that. But on the other hand, the problem that we see today is that many simply assume that all slavery is always wrong, and therefore all slaveholders uh, throughout uh, time stand condemned. This is why there's such a huge cultural push to cancel guys like George Washington, not only George Washington, but also guys like Jonathan Edwards, this great theologian for owning slaves, even if there's no evidence whatsoever that they ever actually abused them. By the way, we'll talk about Edwards and his uh, slaveholding next semester in theological equipping, so that's a bit of a tease for that. Am I defending Edwards? Am I defending George Washington or Thomas Jefferson? Absolutely not. Instead, I'm defending God's word. Right, at the end of the day, the reason that I'm camping out here is that this really boils down to an issue of trust. Are you going to trust God's word? Are we willing to say what it says and to say no more Or are we going to compromise on the sufficiency of Scripture by adding to it or taking away from it? Are we ashamed of what the Bible does and doesn't say on this point? Fifth thing, there are really good reasons for the Bible to not universally condemn slavery or universally require masters to free their slaves. This is what our culture doesn't understand. For instance, in the first century, there was a law in the Roman Empire that limited the number of slaves that someone could set free. So had Paul written and required all masters to free all of their slaves, that would have only meant that the master would have been breaking the law and also that those slaves would have then just been re-enslaved. So imagine you're a slave owner in, uh, in Rome and you're a Christian and you're thinking, Maybe I should just release all my slaves. That seems to be the gracious and loving and kind thing to do. But you know, if you do that, many, if not most of them, will actually be re-enslaved, and this time, perhaps not to someone who is a Christian, someone who is harsh and cruel. Let me ask you, what is actually more loving? What is actually more kind? What is actually more gracious? Not just what seems, not just what feels or sounds compassionate. What is actually more compassionate? Do you set them free and make yourself feel better, but as a result, they suffer more abuse or not? So although it might seem counterintuitive for us, this is actually a brilliant strategy by Paul and Peter and Jesus and so forth to regulate it without condemning it in the context of the first century. That's actually the more loving and wise and good option. But given all of that, number six, There is a subtle hint in Scripture that speaks to the hope of emancipation. We see it in this passage where Paul is going to say, if you can get your freedom, you should. You see it in the book of Philemon. And then that whisper of freedom that you're going to read in Scripture is going to echo throughout church history. And it gets louder and louder and louder until it eventually erupts. Which is why it's really interesting that even though slavery has existed in almost every culture ever, Christianity is really the only force to ever actually reject it and criminalize it, right? So that's a bit of context about slavery. Back to the actual text. Paul gives us this general principle. He says, don't be concerned about your slavery or your freedom. He says, you can serve God as a freed person or as a master or as a slave. Now stop there for a second and ponder the implications of what uh, Paul has just said. He's given these two examples. He's given circumcision, and then he's given slavery. And he said, basically, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Circumcision doesn't matter. Slavery doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You can be faithful regardless. That is literally the very opposite of what our culture says today, where ethnicity which is what circumcision refers to, and socioeconomic class, which is what slavery refers to, are the most important attributes in society. There is nothing more important to you, according to our society today, than your ethnicity and your socioeconomic class. And Paul says, don't be concerned about it. It doesn't matter your worth your value your dignity isn't aligned with your race or your gender or your vocation or your social status or your marital status it's found in God's calling in particular it's found in God's calling of you as a son or a daughter so Paul says don't worry about it but he also says if you have the opportunity to be freed then avail yourself of it by the way in the context, he's not talking about running away or rebelling against uh, your master or something like that. Right, how do we know that? Because the Bible is crystal clear uh, that, uh, that slaves or servants are to submit to their masters, even if they're cruel uh, or harsh. But he's talking about the legal opportunity to be freed through the process of what's called manumission. So again, there is this hope and expectation that eventually, in ancient slavery, you would be set free, typically by the time that you are, uh, are 30 or something. It's a bit of a pro, uh, quid pro quo. At some point, uh, the slave is no longer able to work as hard, and, uh, and so the master doesn't get as much return, so they get a, uh, something by releasing their slave, and the slave gets their freedom. That's manumission. So why does Paul encourage manumission if possible? Well, the reason is because the one who is a slave in this world is free. And the one who's a slave, uh, free in this world is a slave of Christ. In other words, there is this inversion, this reversal, this counterintuitiveness of the world's expectations and demands that we see throughout the book. Remember, the wisdom of, uh, of God is folly to the world and vice versa. There is this inversion here, and you see that idea. Whether you're a slave or free in this world is of no consequence in the kingdom of God because in the kingdom of God, we're all free in one sense, and we're slaves in another sense. You see, the goal of redemption, the goal of being set free, the goal of the gospel is not that we might be our own master or that we might have no master whatsoever, but rather that we would be mastered by Christ, that we might be bond servants of Christ, that we might be slaves of Christ, not pursuing our own interests and passions and desires, but rather those of our Lord. Let's keep going. Verses 23 through 24 you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Paul begins with this. You were bought with a price. The image there is, uh, is of a marketplace. That's the root of this word bought. The Greek word here, uh, the root is agora, as in agoraphobia. What's agoraphobia? Anywhere? No. The fear of what? Fear of public spaces, all right? So, marketplaces or malls or something uh, like that. And so, that's the, uh, the meaning here. So, this is a marketplace sort of imagery, but even more shocking in the context, you just talk about uh, uh, bondservants or slaves, it would have con- conjured up this idea of a slave market and an auction block. You've been redeemed, you've been purchased from slavery, you've been bought with a price. What price? The blood of Christ. Therefore, God has purchased you. This would uh, especially have connotations if you were Jewish as in uh, the book of Exodus, right? That you have been redeemed from uh, slavery to to Egypt through the blood of the lamb. And so in light of that, it says, do not become bondservants of men. Again, this is where we need to keep in mind the difference between most modern forms of slavery and ancient slavery. In most modern uh, forms of slavery, there often isn't much you can do about being enslaved, Right? Unless your dad is Liam Neeson, right? If someone kidnaps you and sells you into slavery, you're kind of stuck. But ancient slavery was often uh, voluntary. Remember, people would sell themselves into slavery to pay off a debt or to move up the social ladder. The closest modern application Might be uh, to those who sell themselves like to a coyote to get them, not an animal, but to to get themselves across the border illegally, or someone who sells themselves into the sex trade for drugs or something like that. They're willingly submitting to slavery for some sort of perceived benefit. So the text says, don't do that. Don't sell yourself into slavery. Why not? Think about this. It makes sense for us, right? Someone just asks, hey, are you going to sell yourself into slavery? You're like, no, you don't have to tell me that. But why is Paul going out of his way to say he's already made this whole big deal about how you can be faithful, whether you're a slave or you're free. So why does he now say not to become a slave? Again, so far as it depends on you. If it really doesn't matter whether you're a slave or not, why does he then say not to do it? Well, think back to the larger context regarding marriage that we see in chapter seven, right? Paul has already said both singleness and marriage are good, But he says within chapter 7 that within marriage, your desires, your responsibilities, they're divided. You're not only concerned with serving Christ, you're also concerned with serving your spouse. And I think uh, the same idea is true here as well. As a slave, your interests are divided. You have two masters in a sense. All right? I, th- I think that, while, uh, that Paul's point is that while slavery isn't this insurmountable obstacle to your faithfulness, it does present some unique challenges and difficulties. And so he would seek to uh, free you from those. So there's a sense in which uh, marriage is like slavery. Though I wouldn't recommend that you say that to your spouse or something. There's another sense, though, in which slavery is very much unlike marriage. Namely, Paul tells those who are in a bad marriage those who are married to unbelievers or whatever, to stay in the marriage. He doesn't give them an out. But here he says that if you have the legal opportunity to be freed from slavery, that's preferable. Now let's look at the last line. He says, so brothers, or brothers and sisters, and whatever c- condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So he's kind of repeating what he said earlier, but notice there's a little addition on the end of it. What are the last two words there? With God, right? You guys awake? <laughs> Literate? All right? You go. OK, that's huge. As someone who was, uh, was single until I was 35, I know how lonely singleness uh, could be at times. For some people, marriage might be a really lonely thing. For those in slavery, I would imagine there is often this overwhelming sense of isolation, yet we're not alone. You're not alone in your condition. You're not alone in your circumstances. For God is with us. He's with us in those. He's empowering us to endure and persevere and even flourish in the midst of hardship. I want to begin to wrap up by telling uh, this, this story. Last weekend, in a quest to get some more stuff for my uh, beach trip, I, uh, I went to uh, the promised land. Shields, in, uh, the, the colony. Just like a cross between Dick's Sporting Goods a Cabela's, a carnival in heaven, all right? <laughs> and I saw this guy while I was there and, uh, and he was in a wheelchair, he had no arms, he had no legs and uh, and he looked really familiar. I thought, man, I, I, I have seen this guy uh, somewhere uh, before and uh, and it turns out that this guy is a, a, a somewhat well-known uh, evangelist. I have no idea if he's a good one. I don't know if his theology is solid um, but it reminded me of this passage as I was uh, thinking about this guy. Here here, uh, is a guy whose circumstances are severe. He has no arms, he has no legs, no hands, and yet he at least seems to be pursuing faithfulness, travels around the world uh, proclaiming the gospel. And church history is littered with stories such as that. The great Princeton scholar, B.B. Warfield, his wife, uh, on their honeymoon, Somehow had an experience in a storm and uh, she was emotionally scarred as a result of it. She was basically a recluse and an invalid for most of their married life. So Warfield was never more than a few hours from her side. The great missionary David Brainerd, he had tuberculosis, chronic depression. Charles Spurgeon, chronic melancholy. He was kicked out of his church for, uh, uh, or, or kicked out of his denomination for holding to orthodoxy. Uh, Athanasius, the church father, was exiled. Luther and Calvin both had chronic diseases. My point is that if depression, if disease, if exile, if even paralysis, even these severe physical handicaps are insurmountable, uh, insurmountable obstacles to faithfulness, then what is? Maybe you think, I'll be faithful to some biblical principle, whatever it is. I'll be faithful to do this or not do that whenever I experience some future condition. I'll do that whenever I get circumcised or whenever I get liberated from slavery. We don't think in those categories, so let me give you some that we would in modern context. I'll be faithful to do this or not do that whenever I get married, whenever I have kids, whenever I get a better job, after the kids' baseball season is over, after all the kids are grown up, After I've gone to seminary, after I get that promotion, after I graduate college, whatever it might be, that's when I'll start going to church. That's when I'll start being generous with my money. That's when I'll start taking my faith seriously. That's when I'll start discipling others. That's when I'll start reading the Bible. That's when I'll get help for my marriage. That's when I'll stop looking at porn. That's when I'll stop gossiping. That's when I'll stop sleeping around. If that's you, that thing that's causing you to be unfaithful now, that's an idol, that's a stumbling block. There is no circumcision, uh, circumcision. There is no circumstance. <laughs> why does that happen? I just don't know why that happens. There is no, it's very humbling <laughs> to, to stand up here. Uh, there is no circumstance in life that prevents you. See, even me, I can say words wrong, and I'm still up here trying, right? There's no circumstance in life that prevents you from being faithful other than sin. That's it. So rather than indulging in that lie, rather than submitting to it, you're called to repent. You can be faithful while single or married. All right, well, while married to the world's best spouse, right, on Father's Day or Mother's Day, you got him a mug that said it to prove it. You could be faithful while rich or poor as a man or as a woman, as uh, uh, someone who is black or white or Latino or whatever it might be, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, it doesn't matter. The overarching point of this passage is to be content with the reality that God is sovereign and he's ordained the conditions of your life so that you might be faithful in the midst of those circumstances. Some things you can faithfully change while others you cannot, but regardless, you are called to steward your circumstances for the glory of God. And by the way, that's also your greatest good. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I confess that it is, uh, uh, it's difficult. I confess, Lord, that, uh, that frustration, that discontentment, that dissatisfaction, that uh, these kinds of things uh, seem to be u- ubiquitous. In fact, our culture presses that upon us. It, uh, through, uh, through advertising and, uh, and uh, just uh, culture in general presses us to be discontented. There's, there's almost this virtue in it. And so I pray that you would help cultivate in us joy and satisfaction and hope and understanding and contentment, knowing that you're good and you do good and that you give good gifts to your children. I pray these things because you're loving and we love you. So we pray in Christ's name, amen.